Corinth is an interesting place. I, I think we got a couple of pictures, right, Dee? So you want to advance for us? So this is the Acropolis of Corinth. You remember, if you were here last week, we talked about how the Acropolis is the high point of the city. It's the most defensible point of the city. So you put all the most important buildings up there. And Corinth is particularly impressive, as you can tell. This is from, we're not even all the way down on the ground uh, here, all the way at sea level. Uh, We're actually about uh, half or uh, two-thirds of the way up the hill. So Corinth is built on a pretty spectacular location. Uh, Let's take a look at the next slide. So here you have the Agora or the marketplace. And this is where Paul was going every day to share the gospel uh, with the Jews. It's obviously just a bunch of ruins right now, but you can imagine it full of people, full of shops and stalls, uh, people doing all sorts of different things, and including people like Paul who are out telling about new ideas and, and trying to convince people to believe differently about their lives. Let's go to the next slide. There aren't many places in the world where you can stand and you can say it happened right here. But this is one of them. In Corinth, this is the Bema seat. This is the place of judgment. This is exactly the place where Paul stood before Gallio, the proconsul, and the Jews accused him. It's a pretty neat spot. doesn't look very neat from the picture, but it's pretty cool to stand there. I think we have one more. Uh, This is this whole story about what happens in Corinth. One of the most interesting things about it is that it is very well attested historically. There are all of these connections to history that we actually have as well. So let me give you an example. Uh, This. inscription is on the ground, and it uh, is actually, what it says, let's see, Erastus, in return for his edelship, or his role uh, in the city's government, laid this pavement at his own expense. This was common in the ancient world, that people who are wealthy, people who are uh, socially connected, would pay for big public works projects. And it was both a way of, of giving back, but also a way of getting your name plastered all over everything. So people go, man, that Erastus must be a really great guy. He gave us this road. Now, the interesting thing about Erastus is that uh, again, this is in Corinth. You can see this. I, uh, I didn't take this picture, but I was standing next to the guy who took this picture when it happened. And Erastus provides an interesting cross-cultural link in the Corinthian church. Uh, Paul converted a man in Corinth named Erastus. And uh, most many scholars believe that this inscription here, the Erastus of this inscription, Uh, is the same Erastus who's mentioned by Paul in a letter later written from Corinth to Rome, in which he said, Erastus, the city treasurer, salutes you. This is Romans 16.23. And it's undoubtedly the same Erastus who later remained in Corinth when Paul was taken to Rome in 2 Timothy 4.20. He was also with Paul in Ephesus on his third journey. We find him again in Acts chapter 19. Verse 22. And while this is a really common name among the people in Ephesus, it's a very uncommon name in Corinth, not otherwise found in the literature and inscriptions of the city. So here is uh, an actual New Testament character, his name written down in the pavement for something that he did. 
Not just this, but there are a number of other things that we're going to come across here. Uh, you, you heard that uh, the Jews had been exiled from Rome. Here in chapter 18, it says uh, in verse 2, there, he met, there Paul met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. This we find in the Roman historian Suetonius. Uh, in about 49 AD, he said that at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. We're just about positive that when it says Crestus, it's the Latinized form of Christus, Jesus Christ. Uh, the Jews and Christians were obviously not getting along in Rome, and Claudius expelled them because of it. So there's history stamped all over this passage. All of that's for free this morning. We're going to move on uh, to what's next, but I didn't want to go too far before mentioning that. Now, if you remember Paul's story so far, he's just come through Macedonia and Achaia, uh, which are parts of modern-day Greece. And wherever he went, first of all, he strengthened all the churches in Asia Minor, and then he traveled through this enormous province of Asia, and God said, don't speak to anybody about Jesus. And Paul was all bottled up, and he was dying to tell someone about Jesus. And finally, he has a dream, go across the Aegean Sea, go into Macedonia, and there the people are waiting for you to proclaim the gospel. So Paul goes to Thessalonica and he proclaims the gospel for a few weeks and the Jews get angry and they, they chase him out with a mob. And then he goes to Berea and he proclaims the gospel for a few weeks and the Jews follow him from Thessalonica and get angry and the mob chases him out again. And then he goes to Philippi. And while he's in Philippi, I'm sorry, I think I've actually mixed these up. Philippi comes first. But while he's in Philippi, he proclaims the gospel. He gets thrown in jail, beaten up, and then asked to leave the city. So everywhere Paul goes, it's a relatively short stay. He converts a few people, but then he's chased out of the city. And he must have felt like things were just going to repeat themselves in Corinth. Because what happens well, as he's proclaiming the gospel in the marketplace, like that place we saw just a few moments ago on the slides, uh, as he's proclaiming the gospel in the synagogue in Corinth, the Jews begin to reject him. So much so that Paul actually shook out his clothes. He gets to the, the edge of the synagogue and he shakes all of his clothes and he kicks all the dust off of his feet. And he says, I want nothing to do with you. I'm so sick of all of your opposition. Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And it's actually pretty funny what happens next. It says, then Paul stormed out of the synagogue and he went to the house of Titius Justice, who lived where? Next door. <laughs> he walked all the way next door and said, I'm going to. So every time those Jews who had rejected the gospel would go to synagogue, they would have seen the place where Paul was staying, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And probably every week, they would have gotten more irritated about it. But even though Paul got so upset, even though he said, I'm giving up in some ways, the, the mission to the Jews here, there are still Jews who choose to follow Jesus. Crispus, the synagogue leader in his entire household, believed in the Lord. How dis disconcerting would that be? if your pastor all of a sudden converted and left and went somewhere else. I don't think that's going to happen, just so you know. 
And Paul must have been discouraged. He must have been just waiting for the banging on the door and the footsteps to come and the, the figuratively the pitchforks and the torches to come out to run him out of town again. But something different happens in Corinth. It says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack you and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth. Did you catch how long he stayed in Corinth? It's a year and a half. He'd been chased out after a couple of weeks, his last three or four cities, and now he stays a year and a half in Corinth because God had given him a great mission there. And he said, I want you to take care of it. I have many people here that I want you to reach. See, when resistance rises against the message of the gospel, sometimes you run. That's just how it is. Sometimes you go. You say, there's no more ministry I can do here. Paul even does this in Corinth, doesn't he? In the synagogue, he says, there's nothing more I can do for you. I've given you everything that you need. Now your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent of it. I've made every effort. And so he leaves. But even though sometimes there is an Athens or a a Berea or a Thessalonica or a Philippi, Sometimes there's a Corinth. When resistance rises against the message of the gospel, it can be an opportunity for the gospel to be deeply rooted in that very same place. When opposition arises, we heard Jesus commands Paul to keep on speaking. Why? Now imagine just for a moment that you were reading Acts all the way back in the first century. We think uh, no one's 100% sure when the book of Acts was written, but I think it's likely that it was written uh, shortly before the end of Paul's, uh, well, before the end of Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. The reason why uh, I and a number of other folks think this is because if you get to the very last chapter of Acts, it's a cliffhanger. Paul is in prison in Rome waiting to go to trial before Caesar, and that trial will determine whether he lives or he dies. We read in the book of Philippians that that's the choice that's before Paul. He says, I don't know what's just going to happen. The Acts ends on a cliffhanger, and the best reason for it to end on a cliffhanger and not to have another book after it is if this is all she wrote. This is all there was to write at the time, which means that the book of Acts is written somewhere in the middle part of the first century, which means that people would have been living still in Corinth who could have picked up the book of Acts and read it and learned about the founding of their own church. And what would that have been like for those people there? They would have seen, they they would have read the stories. You know, he got chased out of Philippi, chased out of Berea, chased out of Thessalonica, had no real good opportunity for mission in Athens. And he comes to our city and God says, stay there because I have many people I want to reach in Corinth. Wouldn't that be encouraging to you? Wouldn't you be thinking God came to our city on purpose through Paul? God chose us. God had a special love and affection for us that he had Paul stay. He protected Paul. He had that mission continue for a year and a half. 
I think it would have been exactly like that. And I think the truth is that the story of the church in Corinth is a story that's actually often repeated. Our church has been around in Lemon Cove for a long time. Uh, I, I did some math. I think this is our 115th year in Lemon Cove. Long time. Uh, not as old as the Woodlake Church, uh, you know, they get to be the older brother. Uh, and as a matter of fact, if I understand it right, they help plant this church, right? Yeah. So the church has been around a long time. Tom, uh, you've told me before that uh, there was a time where there were only two families keeping this church going, right? It was the Karenses, I think the Montgomerys, wasn't it? And the Montgomerys. So I don't see Bruce here this morning, but the Montgomerys are still here. The Karenses are still here. Two families were left in this church. And we're still here. We're more than two families today. God cares about Lemon Cove, doesn't he? A lot of towns our size don't have a church. A lot of towns our size, you're going to Exeter, Three Rivers, or Woodlake, or anywhere else, because there's nothing here. Folks, God has a special place in his heart for Lemon Cove. Now, how could this be? Why was it Corinth and not Thessalonica and not Berea and, and not Philippi where the mission continues in this way? Why is it that the church continues in Lemon Cove? Because the first thing we need to admit right off the bat is it's not because we're so great. Can we all agree on this? We are not probably the most skilled church that's ever been around. We're not the flashiest church that's ever been around. I mean, I think that people have actually looked at our church in the past. I know some of us feel this way about when our church changed denominations, that there was a sense of just let those guys go because they're not long for this world anyway. It's not because of us, but we are deeply loved. By God. And the Corinthians were deeply loved by God. Why does God do this? I want to take you to several different scripture passages. And we're going to do it a little bit quickly. You don't have to memorize these now. You can memorize them later if you like, but you don't have to memorize them now. First, we're going to go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We're going to read verses 4 and 5 and 11 and 12. It says that God chose us. Plural, right? Not just Lemon Cove, but each God chose his people, all of his people, in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will. Because it's what he wanted to do. And in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. If you get nothing else out of this passage, you should get this. God chose you. Before you were anything, before you did anything, based on his love for you. 2 Timothy 1.9 Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, this is Paul, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us 
to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Why did God choose you? Why did he choose me? Not because of our works, but because of his mercy, his own purpose and grace before we even existed. Romans 8, 29 to 30. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Again, this is Paul speaking. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own... I just read this one. Someone stop me when I do that. For those whom he foreknew... Now we're in Romans. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn. Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, chose beforehand is what that word means. God also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Is there any uncertainty in that chain of events in that passage? Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. He declared you righteous. And those whom he justified, he glorified. There's no uncertainty in any of this. Because who is the one who's at work? God. Now, I have started a lot of things in my life that I didn't finish. Anyone else out there like that? start a lot of things in our lives that we don't finish. And doesn't that color the way that we look at the world? I sure hope this thing gets done, right? I hope it happens on time. I sure hope that that person follows through on their commitment to me. I was thinking about a conversation with my kids the other day, and I was saying, hey, every time this happens, you need to do this. And they said, oh, I don't know if I can remember to do that. And I said, that's not an excuse. We need to remember So how do we help ourselves remember? But there's this own sense of of skepticism about our own ability to follow through in all these different ways, isn't there? Not to mention, I mean, if we're we're a little bit skeptical about our ability to follow through, we're really skeptical about the people around us, aren't we? Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. Like, you said you're going to do this. I'll wait and see if you actually show up. And that's why sometimes this this whole idea that God is the one who grabs onto us and holds on is difficult because we're judging out of our own human experience, right? We're thinking, I know people who don't follow through. Sometimes I'm that person who doesn't follow through. So if my future is in God's hands, I'm concerned because will he really follow through? Will he really follow through? Can I really trust that he will work out all of these things for my good. That Romans 8 passage, that's the context. So you know, those whom he uh, uh, predestined, he called and called, he justified and justified, he glorified. That Romans 8 passage, right before we read that, here's what it says. I didn't put that in my notes, so I have to turn in my Bible back to it. 29 to 30. Says, and we know, this is the preface to that certainty of God's calling. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. 
And those whom God predestined, he called, called, justified, justified, glorified. God always follows through. Now we're back to Philippians 1, that that place Paul had to run out of, get out ahead of the crowd. Paul writes to that church and says, I am certain of this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. And so when God calls us to put our faith in him, to actually trust in him, he's not saying, please do this, right? Trust in me like, I really hope it's going to work out. He's saying, trust in me because I am the trustworthy one. I'm the one who takes you from beginning to end. I'm the one who, when I call, I justify and I glorify. I always, always, always follow through. Wouldn't that change our lives if in the midst of our deepest struggles and our greatest pain, we remembered God is the one who always follows through for my good and the good of the people around me. Always. Without exception, because he's not like us. If we judge him by ourselves and by the other people we meet in our life, we will always be disappointed. But if we judge him by, well, he is God. This is who he is. This is what he does. We'll never be disappointed. And I think, I think what one verse that'll really help us with this as well. We've been in the New Testament. Let's go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament. God says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God, speaking to all of Israel assembled at the mountain. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers because he follows through. And so the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is what's happening in Corinth. God loves those people. And if you read, uh, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth more than any other church, probably because he stayed there so long and he knew them so well, but also because they had so many problems. They had a lot of problems. And some of them were pretty bad, (laughs) pretty severe, things that you would be like, I can't believe that's happening. See, God didn't choose the people in Corinth because they'd be the best church, did he? He chose the people in Corinth just because he loved them for reasons we, have, we don't understand. We just don't. The Westminster Confession of Faith sums it up in this way. It says, those people who are predestined to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, as Ephesians 1 stuff, 
according to his eternal and his unchangeable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, which is the divines at the Westminster Assembly basically going, eh, we don't know. Because of the secret counsel of his will has chosen in Christ those people predestined to life to everlasting glory, out of his free grace and love alone, without either foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in any of them. That'll be a really good person, not because of that. That'll be someone who makes good choices all their lives or will choose me where other people would reject us. Nope, not on that basis either. He doesn't choose people based on anything in the creature as conditions or causes moving him to do so. It's simply to the praise of his glorious grace. Why Corinth? Simply to the praise of his glorious grace. Why Lemon Cove? Why me? Why you? Simply to the praise of his glorious grace. You know what that means? When you were drowning in alcohol and addiction, God had already chosen you. When you were promising that you would never be a Christian, that you never wanted anything to do with God himself, God had already chosen you and didn't give you up. When you had heard the gospel and treated it with indifference, thinking that you would get to it later, that it wasn't really that important, God had already chosen you. And the next time you sin, be it in just a moment or tomorrow or next week, remember, God has already chosen you. He chose you before the world had even begun to come together, before anyone else could even begin to imagine that you would exist. You weren't even a twinkle in somebody's eyes. He chose you at the very beginning because he already knew you, and he already loved you for reasons that none of us can even begin to comprehend or understand. He chose you to be his son or his daughter and to become like Jesus. He chose this life for you. So God has chosen his people, and nothing will stop God from reaching them. And that's what we get out of this passage. We're going to go to the last scene here in verse 12. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment, that Bema seat that we saw. Now, we think most likely this happened when Gallio assumed the proconsulship. Okay, so he, a change in leadership happens, and the Jews think, this guy, we can get him to do what we want. You know, he hasn't been here. He doesn't know the story. But here's how the story goes on. Uh, story goes on. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And just as Paul was about to speak, because this is what he did, right? Remember, he's been dragged in front of a lot of proconsuls in his life. And he's about to make a defense. But Gallio said to them, interrupts Paul, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But basically, this is an internal religious matter, is what he says. And I will not be a judge of such things. There's a lot of wisdom in what Gallio says there. A lot of wisdom I would commend to all of us today, as a matter of fact. But he drove off the crowd. 
And it said, then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader. Remember, uh, Crispus, the old synagogue leader, had become a Christian, so they've appointed a new one, Sosthenes. And they beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. So what's the outcome of this? Well, Gallio makes a ruling here that maybe we don't recognize right off the bat without some benefit of other historical study. But what happens, Gallio is making a ruling that solidifies not only the protection of the gospel in Corinth, but it protects Christians throughout the Roman Empire for at least a decade. Because what Gallio did is he said these Christians are Jews. Judaism is a permitted religion where Christianity as its own religion would not have been. So anytime the Christians would be dragged in front of the Romans going forward, they could just say, well, we're a sect of Judaism. We're allowed to practice our faith. And they'd say, that's right. And they'd let them off the hook. And in this way, the Christians avoided persecution uh, for at least a decade all across the Roman Empire. And so Jesus has kept his promise to Paul. The ministry in Corinth will be wildly successful. Further, Gallio himself, we know from history, becomes an advisor to the emperor Nero. And it's very possible that Gallio would have influenced Nero in the favorable outcome of Paul's first arrest and imprisonment at the end of the book of Acts. Gallio is, oh yeah, I've actually seen this guy before. Those Jews have really got it out for him, but I advise you, Nero, don't get involved. And that's essentially what happens, although we're speculating on Gallio's role. And here's the takeaway for us. First, we remember that God is, if we belong to God, it's because God has chosen us. And what he chooses, he never lets go. And he always uh, takes care of us to the very end. But also, we'll be in a relationship with a number of different people over the course of our lives. Some people we've met, we'll never see them again. Some people, of course, were part of their lives today. And there's some people we'll meet in the future, and we'll have a new relationship with them. Our job, like Paul's job, for all of these relationships that we have, is simply to be faithful to God. The temptation, of course, is to say, I need to change this person and transform their lives. That's what God has put them in my life for, so that I will change them. Right? You, you, get, you ever feel this way? And I feel this way all the time. Right? I have to change this person. I am responsible for their welfare. But that responsibility is lifted off of us. And God's saying, no, I am responsible for their welfare. You are responsible to be faithful. Everywhere you are, whatever you're doing, while you are going, you are witnesses to Jesus Christ. But God is the one who gives the outcome. God is the one who gives the outcome. With your children, with your friends and your family, with your neighbors, God is the one who gives the outcome. And just like Paul, sometimes that outcome won't be so happy. It won't be what we are looking for, what we want. But that's on God's shoulders, not ours. And other times, that outcome will be wonderful and spectacular. Lives will be changed and transformed. And it won't be because of what we brought to the situation, but because of the God who showed up and changed the lives of the people 
that we encounter. Now, it isn't an excuse to do a lousy job, of course, because that's not what faithfulness looks like. But it is encouragement. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to be a good Christian missionary, whether it's professionally, somewhere else in the world, or in your very own home and neighborhood. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You just have to be faithful. Just let God have his way in you. And secondly, if the first uh, takeaway is just be faithful, the second takeaway is that God will not fail to gather all those he has purposed to gather. He will do in Corinth what he has purposed in Corinth. He will do in Philippi what he has purposed in Philippi. He will do in Lemon Cove and Exeter and Three Rivers and everywhere else what he has purposed to do. Opposition will never overcome God's people. It will never frustrate God's plan. 